5280 Church Podcast, because everyone needs more hope, genuine community, and a clearer picture of God's love. Hi there, and welcome into 5280 Church Podcast. 5280 Church exists for those searching to know God. Whether you are a longtime churchgoer or spiritually frustrated and homeless, we strive to create a safe space where you can come, interact with others on the same journey, and ask the tough questions. At 5280 Church, we believe that Jesus is the ultimate personification of God, but we encourage everyone to be in their own process of seeking, finding, and knowing God. No judgment, no exceptions. You can join our community at our website, 5280church.com, or on Facebook at 5280church. Each Sunday, we broadcast a portion of our service on Facebook Live to give you a taste of what your experience will be, and so you can meet some friendly faces. Tune in and interact with our host, asking your questions and digging deep into all things spiritual. In this series, Hashtag Blessed, we are taking a close look at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, a section commonly known as the Beatitudes. In this passage, Jesus declares a blessing over several categories of people. However, his choice of people groups is interesting. It seems he wants to write a script that flips our preconceived notions on its head. It's the poor, the weak, and the nonviolent that appear to receive Jesus' stamp of approval. What are we to make of this, and what does it actually mean to be blessed? Jump in with us as we seek to find the truth behind Jesus' famous mountaintop address. And without further ado, hashtag blessed. All right, everyone, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and find Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, Matthew 5, 5. We're in a series titled Hashtag Blessed. I don't know about you, if you kind of scroll through Facebook, you see some pretty fun things about blessings. You know, most of them have to do with family, maybe new cars, being able to go on vacation. All those things are awesome. They are wonderful, incredible blessings. But you know, when you look at the Bible... Um, Jesus has a very interesting list of blessings that most of us don't like to talk about. Matter of fact, they're mostly things that we try to avoid in life. Um, But he comes in and he begins to speak that even in those situations we can have blessings. And he starts off his very first message, the Sermon on the Mount is called in the Bible, with a series of statements that says, blessed are those who... And he fills in this condition. And then he says what the promise that comes. You know, we've so far we've looked at blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we've last week we looked at blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And we see a pattern in each one of these statements. People that meet a condition find themselves in a circumstance. And then there's this promise that comes to those that are in that condition or circumstance. So in other words, you know, really comfort doesn't come unless you're at first in a position to need it. You know, the kingdom of heaven comes to those that are poor in spirit. And they build on one another. Each one is kind of foundation. So being poor in spirit and receiving the kingdom of heaven is this idea of being able to enter into a relationship with God to live in his uh, rule and his influence in our life and to have his kingdom in us on earth. And so it's the idea of being able to interact and commune and fellowship and exist with God here, not just in eternity. And he says it's for those who are poor in spirit, for those that realize that this is something that they cannot earn or deserve. And the reason that this is a blessing is because we don't have to earn or prove ourselves. 
Think about that. Imagine a life where you don't have to earn anything or prove yourself. It's pretty freeing. And this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the way God looks at humanity. Come to me for who you are, where you are. We talked about mourning and the different reasons that we mourn and, and how God comforts. And, and comfort really means to call near. And we talked about how powerful that was, is that sometimes we look at pain and suffering and heartbreak as being drawn away from God, but God is already there calling us near in the middle of those things. So God, there's not a place that we can go, there's not a circumstance that we experience, whether it's our fault or it's been inflicted upon us, that God cannot be found, and we can find ourselves at a place where God doesn't want us to be near him. God always calls us near Which brings us to this week's blessing, which is, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, this is a really challenging word, because some of the things that come to mind when we think of meekness is gentle, right? Sometimes in your translations it says, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Um, Some translations we think of mild, we almost think of weakness. It's almost seen as a negative attribute. You know, meekness is someone that is so laid back and so doesn't assert themselves that they are just kind of a doormat and they're run over and they're bullied through their entire life. But that's not meekness. Another thing that makes it confusing is that the promises is that they inherit the earth. What in the world is that? Um, So, it's the idea of, of a kingdom, right? It's you're an heir to a kingdom. You're heir to what your father owns or what your king owns. You, you inherit his influence. You inherit his rule. You inherit the blessings that come from, in, this, in our case, in Christianity, we have a good king who rules over humanity with goodness, and we participate in a healthy kingdom, if you will. In other words... We win the hearts of people. We see a greater good happening within people. So the idea of meekness is best understood when we realize that it doesn't mean weak. And it doesn't carry with it in the Bible the the negative implications that we carry with it in our culture. And it actually is best understood when we look at the person of Jesus who is anything but weak and mild but he is incredibly gentle and kind and loving. So you have God who speaks and the universe is created, incredible power, who makes himself completely approachable in the person of Jesus to every person on the planet, no matter what your social economic status is, no matter whether you're a church person or an unchurched person, whether you've gotten it right your whole life, which you haven't, and you've blown it miserably, all people could come to God. Think about that. All people can come to God, look him in the eyes, and receive gentleness. Meekness is best understood as power under restraint. It's in, in Greek language, they use it to describe a broken horse, right? When you get a wild horse and you try to ride it, it is, I've seen it, I wouldn't do it. I rode one horse in my life, I'll tell you about that in a second. And, but, you know, trying to break a horse is impossible, And the idea that, you know, you're convincing this animal that could kill you at any moment that you could approach it and ride it and control it is a pretty powerful thing. 
But the truth is, the animal's still in control. It's the animal's decision whether they want you to be around it. So there's this incredible power under restraint. The horse hasn't lost its power. It's just chose to exercise it in a different way. You know, for me, my first horseback riding experience was on a horse named Rocket. <laughs> and so we go out on a horseback ride, and turns out Rocket is not really a good name for this animal. Because it, I mean, turtles move faster than this horse. So the whole trail takes off. They're going through the fields of, of Montana. It's beautiful scenery. I got to see about 20 yards of it while they got to see about a mile and a half of it. And this horse was not going anywhere. No matter how much you tried to spur it on, no matter how much you said giddy up, no matter how much you encourage it, the horse was going to go at the pace it was going, and it was not fast. Until <laughs> the lead horse turns around. Then he turned around and took off. I mean, he ran the complete opposite direction. So here's a guy that's never ridden a horse before in his life, holding on for dear life. I swear, I'm holding the neck of this horse because I am all over the place. But anyway, I realized very quickly that this animal is in complete control and I'm just going along for the ride. And I think that's a pretty good picture of how most of us feel in life. And we wrestle with that because we want to be in control. And Jesus is simply saying that the blessing comes to those who are meek, who realize that there is a greater power that is in control of all things, who is sustaining and leading and guiding. And a person that understands that they have nothing to earn or prove, that God is in every circumstance they have heard his voice calling in the depths of darkness can walk in meekness realizing that it's not up to them. What's really incredible is that God's power starts to become an influence through our life. Think of it like this. Those that are meek inherit the earth. If you understand meekness, you will influence the world. It's like a surgeon who has incredible power but knows how to apply it very specifically and gently to the most difficult of operations. God promises you that kind of power if you're meek. So let's talk about the power that the meek have to bring healing to the world. We know that our hearts are broken over a lot of things. Broken relationships, broken faith, broken dreams, and the brokenness of others. All of these things affect our lives. We can have power to change those things. First of three ways that we can do that is realizing that the meek are free from the need of validation. Right? Going back to blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for they receive the kingdom of heaven. They realize that they have nothing to earn. They don't have anything to prove. Just like Jesus walked on the earth, he didn't come and need validation or affirmation of who he was. He simply was who he was. There was no need for him to feel like he had to align himself with any particular group of people. There was no sense of angst and turmoil over what was going on. There's brokenness. His heart was crushed over things that he saw were happening in people's lives and what was going on around him, but it was a very different response. The way Jesus responded was not in the need for validation. 
Matter of fact, when people tried to validate him, tried to elevate him as king, tried to make him what they thought he should be, he resisted those things and simply rested back on the fact that he was God in the flesh and he had one desire and one desire only, and that is to model a loving, connected relationship with the Heavenly Father and letting people see what that does in a person's life. At every turn, that's Jesus' message. I am the Father are one. As you see me, you're seeing the Father. And as you look at me, you're seeing how I want you to relate to the Father and how I want to restore that broken relationship. I want you to see that you can approach God. I want to show you how you can connect with God. You don't need to church yourself up. You don't need to align yourself perfectly theologically. You simply need to come and you need to allow me to lead you and guide you. See, when we get into the game of validation, we start picking theological camps. And theology is important, but I promise you that every theology falls short because it takes an aspect of God and tries to define it. Or it takes a picture of God and tries to define it. But God is bigger than our theology. All theology is incomplete because it has to be connected to other aspects of God and other activities of God. It's taking the entire book of the Bible and trying to reduce it down to a handful of points. There's always going to be a gap. It's always going to fall short. It may help us understand a particular aspect of God. It may help us understand a particular working of God in our life. But it will never, never give us a complete picture of God by which we should view ourselves or others. And for most of us, we pick theological camps to validate our opinions. Very few of us anymore come to the Bible with an open mind. Very few of us go to Google with an open mind. We're looking for validation. Someone that thinks the way we think, feels the way we feel. And that's not entirely bad. But where it breaks down is, if you're seeking validation, whoever you align yourself with, you just gave them the power to define your identity. This is why Jesus didn't submit himself to any other authority around. He was the authority. To submit himself to a particular camp would allow that camp to define him. Let me break it down a little further. Experience does not equal truth. Experience equals experience. And it's real. Sometimes it's incredible. Sometimes it's painful. Experience equals experience. You're exactly right. Your experience is what your experience is. But your experience doesn't equal truth. Think about every holiday you celebrated as a kid. Your experience said all kinds of things were true. Your experience said Jesus was born on December 25th. Jesus was not born on December 25th. Your experience tells you that the wise men came the night of Christ's birth, right after the shepherds, about 18 months, maybe within two years of Christ's life. Experience wasn't real. And there's the whole Santa thing, Easter Bunny, Tooth Fairy. Experience created a very powerful reality for you not a very good truth for you. 
See, truth simply means validity to the original. So what's the original? Who's your original? Yourself? Your thoughts, your beliefs, your failures, your successes, your appearance, your relationships? Or is it being created in the image of God? He's your original. So when we look for validity, we look to him. Make people understand that. So when things go wrong in your life, it's not an indictment on you as a person. When people do incredibly hurtful and spiteful things to one another on the planet, it is not an indictment of their worth or their value. It's a revelation of their experience. But aligning ourselves and choosing sides, looking for validation for anyone or anything apart from God himself will always lead to conflict. Unresolvable conflict. It will pit you against other humans. Sometimes pit you against yourself. Jesus didn't do that. People that are meek are centered. They're okay with who they are. They realize that no matter what, God is there. They can trust him. They can look to him and follow him. Second way that the meek bring power to the world <clears throat> is that they acknowledge rebellion towards God and selfishness towards others. That's sin. Sin is our rebellion towards God and selfishness towards others. They acknowledge that it exists. Minimizing sin and brokenness is to trivialize people that have been victimized and hurt by it. To amplify it is to crush them under the weight of it. Jesus did neither one. He acknowledged it. You see both extremes in the tendency with a woman caught in adultery, right? It's a passage in the Bible where Jesus enters and there's this crowd of angry men with rocks in their hands and a woman lying on the ground and the accusation against Jesus saying, all right, Jesus, we finally got you. This was a test him. This woman was a pawn to try to test him. And said, okay, Jesus, the law says that anybody caught in adultery should be stoned and killed. What do you say? And Jesus does this incredible thing that none of us really get. He kneels down and he starts writing in the sand. We have no idea what he wrote in the sand. I'm not even going to speculate. But I want you to understand something. If you're the angry crowd, you're amplifying this woman's sin. The law says to condemn and throw the rocks. And you're holding those rocks. What is between your hands and the woman caught in adultery. Jesus. And then he looks and he says, he who is without sin totally calls people out in sin. Throw the first stump. Which was, hey, you're not perfect and B, no matter what your response is, I'm going to take the first shot. 
That's power. God dealt with sin in profound and powerful ways. He didn't marginalize it. He didn't normalize it. He didn't excuse it. He didn't wipe it out. And for those that would jump to the condemnation side of sin, he says, listen, I'm there and I will take the condemnation. Why is that important? Because it's not just about the woman and it's not just about the man. There were families that were ripped apart by adultery. Have you ever been around somebody who has experienced that betrayal? It's bigger than our view. It's bigger than our theology. It's bigger than being a fundy. It's bigger than being a progressive Christian. It's bigger. It's about a gospel that God loves and redeems both the victimizer and the victim. It's God loving both those who have committed sin and those who have been affected by it. It's about God stepping in and intervening and taking the punishment and offering something better than our own solutions. And the meek can do the same thing. We don't have to pick a side. We have to live a story. We have to reflect a work that God is doing in our life. This is what the world needs. This is what the world is not seeing. And then Jesus looks at the woman, which is really powerful, and he said, woman, who is there to condemn you? Again, not ignoring her sin. And she said, no one. And he says, neither do I. God offered her renewal. He stood in between the condemnation to offer renewal for those that were with sin. He did not ignore the pain that the actions on all sides were creating to people that we don't even see in the narrative. And he did it in a powerful and gentle way. He lived as someone who needed to be redeemed, but didn't need to be redeemed. He entered into people's worlds and stood with them, offering them something that they could not get for themselves. So he acknowledged the rebellion and the sin, and he offered renewal. The third way that the meek bring powerful healing to the world is that they realize humanity's greatest need is to be restored to the image of God. They realize that the narrative isn't about asking Jesus into your heart. Listen, the church has really tried to do some things to make the gospel understandable And we use language that may have had different implications at different times in life. When we talk about asking Jesus into our heart, there was a time that we understood that the desires of our heart is what needed to be changed. We ask Jesus in there. He changes the desires of our hearts. That's not what we believe in our culture anymore. Asking Jesus into our heart means that Jesus validates the desires of our heart. Our desires are not wrong. They should not be changed. They should not be challenged. They should be supported and encouraged And respected. And while that is kind of true, it still leaves you 
and brokenness? What happens if the desires of your heart are not pure and not holy and not just? See, they realized that renewal is what they needed. And they realized what the world really needs is renewal. The gospel is about restoring a broken image and a broken relationship. It's bigger than love. The gospel isn't that God loves us. It's a motivation. That's what we experience in a relationship with him, but it's not the gospel. It's not the good news. Because you don't really need the cross for God to love you. unnecessary just love you and accept you and validate you and care for you and it's going to be okay but he subjected himself willfully to this horrendous torturous death that literally ripped the flesh off of his body and was hung naked on a cross to breathe his last breath uttering nothing but words of compassion along the way why? Why that power? Renewal. To literally to change the desire of humanity. What's the outcome of the gospel? It's not forgiveness. It's part of it. The outcome of the gospel is to be renewed in a relationship with God. Think about it for a second. His story. It's the story of redemption. Genesis. Turn over there for a second. Chapter 1. God has this incredible vision to create an earth that is beautiful and glorious in the center of a universe that is more astounding than any of us could ever imagine. The pictures are overwhelming. God breathe all of that into existence. And then he chose to take this vastness and then he would enter into that creation and get down on his hands and knees and do the unthinkable and that's create someone in his image with his own hands and breathe his own breath into him. God did not speak distantly to bring you into existence. He personally and intimately formed you, humanity, in his image. Which means there's parts of humanity that are supposed to reflect God. And we also know that we are really poor reflections of God. And a person that is meek understands that they're not anybody's Jesus. We've been taught that, well, you're the Jesus to your, your parents, what we, you know, to your kids. Well, as parents, if I'm Jesus, my kids don't have a shot at really knowing who he is. Any more than me being the Jesus to the community, they don't have a shot at seeing a clear picture of Jesus because I am a broken vessel and I have the same need that they happen to have, and that is being renewed from the inside out. My goal, my contribution to the story is to do what I was supposed to do when God created humanity, and that is to be a, a, a person that lives in a right relationship with God, to show what it's like to enjoy being created in his image. See, God created us, and then 
as he spoke and he created things, he said it was good, and this is good, and this was good, and this is good, and all of it together is very good. And then he looks at Adam and Eve and he says, listen, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to create for you a helper. And so he, he, he puts them together. He gives them a relationship, this community that they can enjoy with each other that reflects their relationship with him with no insecurity, no shame, no need for validation, no need for anything, just beautiful and perfect and always loving and always kind without a hardship or a worry or concern or pain. And they were given one rule. Enjoy the relationship. Live in it for all eternity. And don't reject it. Don't forsake it. Don't leave it to get your own version of truth. Your own knowledge of good and evil. That was it. Enjoy. Rest. Be complete. And we all know we want our own choice. Chapter 1 beauty of creation. Chapter two, beauty of relationship. And the one rule. Chapter three, man exchanges it. A page and a half of perfection of what a relationship with God is supposed to look like. And the rest of it is us trying to recoil from the repercussions of it. People that are meek clearly see that. And when they're offended, they don't feel the need to retaliate. They feel the need to help people see that they need to be restored the way God is restoring them. See, the goal in life isn't to be Jesus. The goal in life is to point to Jesus. That's powerful. How would that change the conflicts with your parents, the conflicts with your spouse, the conflict with your kids? How would this change? Racism, gender fluidity, Christianity. And what power would this message bring to the world? Meekness begins with somebody that knows that they have nothing to earn or prove. They rest securely in a relationship with God. They know that there is not a dark place that they can go on the planet where they will not hear the comforting voice of God saying, come near. And they offer directions to finding that to anybody that listens. And the result is they inherit the earth. question is, is that the story we want to live?